Hello, my telenovelas and marmalade sandwiches. You're very welcome back to Poncification this week, where, as always, I am joined by... Horatio Sexbomb Von Valentine. Horatio Sexbomb Von Valentine. Do you want to give me a little bit of backstory on that? Or? No. That's my no, name. You're happy to... Sorry, does your name have a backstory? I shouldn't ask that. Your name does have a backstory. Yeah, I'm also not going to tell it on air because it's actually boring as shit. Well, there you go. You understand. It just is my name. <laughs> it is your name, and I accept you that you identify as Horatio McLovin Valentino the Fourth. Um, <laughs> should we try and get some money? Would that be okay with you before we get started? I mean, usually we have a polite little part where I go, "How are you, Chase?" and you go, "I'm okay," and then you go, "How are you, Emma?" and I go, "Yeah, I'm grand." But yeah, let's yes, let's. But given skip that it. this is a podcast on romance, I decided, "Fuck it," I just skip the foreplay entirely because <laughs> I have to live up to my name as a man, and we're just going to get going. But you know what? Let's let's have our sponsors if that's okay. Go on. <clears throat> This week, Pontification is brought to you by Candles. Have you ever been caught in a power cut? Maybe you've desecrated an unholy mess upon a toilet bowl, or even flatulated in the company of a loved one. Either way, you need candles. Candles are the best way to illuminate a room and unruminate a smell, whether you're masking that bottom expulsion or dripping hot wax down the back of your neighbour Todd, while your husband David attempts to negotiate with the complex knot you've put in his restraints. Candles are the most versatile tool for you. Candles, hot wax for hot snacks. I've told you before about whispering in the headphones. <laughs> Pontification is also brought to you by unexplained back pain. Are you a healthy young person that's demonstrated hubris in front of the ever so slightly more elderly? Just wait, because you are now entitled to unexplained back pain. Soon you'll be engaging in such delightful activities as making a noise when exiting a chair, hearing a crack when you lie in a bed, and even saying oof every time you lift something. Unexplained back pain. It'll happen to you. It is happening to me. It's happened to me long ago. Mm. And speaking of romance, there's nothing worse than when you lean across seductively to your partner and your knees crack. There is, actually. Yeah. I'm not going to get... Something worse there's something much worse. I'm not going <laughs> to get too detailed, but uh, I was born with dislocated hips, and uh, they're, they're still not the strongest all of these years later, and sometimes they just lock in place or whatever the case may be at just the worst times. <laughs> I had a female bodybuilder friend who used to, you know the way people would say, oh, I have childbearing hips or whatever. Mm. She would joke and say she had child-breaking hips. <laughs> That's <laughs> funny because I have child-breaking thighs. Oh. Oh. Yeah. We'll get into that in a minute. Let me just get through our sponsors. Let's not. You don't want paid. to. It's not a safe place to be. <laughs> okay. Pontification is, of course, brought to you by the ideal version of yourself. Have you felt that you are flawed and missing that ever-so-vital attribute that would allow you to attract a mate? You need the ideal version of yourself. The ideal version of yourself is the only version of yourself that makes you worth more than the speck of dust you are on this cold and a different planet. Achieving and becoming the ideal version of yourself is simple. All you need to do is buy the new BMW, the latest Calvin Klein, the most recent Louis Vuitton, the local gym membership, the pair of satin socks, and the most expensive vodka. The ideal version of yourself... Buy today, because you are not worth tomorrow. Dark. It is, but look, they're paying us. I'm not going to argue with it. Let's just take the money and we'll move on. <laughs> okay. And finally, and finally, Pontification is brought to you by Love. 
Are you inexplicably changing every aspect of yourself in order to please another human being? You're probably suffering from love. Love is the only legal intoxicant that has the power to physically and mentally either destroy or save a human being. Love makes you exercise more, want to turn off the radio, drink more, drink less, smoke more, smoke less, and even give up 18 years of your life so that someone with half your DNA can study a degree in financial administration. Love, it's in the air, like pollution. (laughs) Oh dear. I mean, yeah, okay. I'll take it. Happy Valentine's Day, Emma. Happy Valentine's Day, love. (laughs) So, yeah, I think you mentioned it earlier, but we're talking about romance. Or, oh, I thought we were talking about Romans. Fuck. Um, Just carry on, I'll come up with something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It'll be fine. Very romantic people. No, they weren't. They really weren't. They were... It's funny, but only if you know some history. (laughs) Um... (laughs) Which, you know, let's assume they do. So I actually, I I hadn't planned on this, but I just remembered I do have a romantic story about candles and it's not, it's not going to be dirty. Okay. I can see you looking at me, it's not going to be dirty. So I'm going to tell it to you really quickly before we get down to business. You always say, I can see you looking at me on the podcast and I'm not even looking at you. I'm normally looking at my notes when you say it. Every time. You often drama. make faces at me. It's just my face, Emma. I want the record to show that Chase is now making kissy faces at me and I don't like it and I don't feel safe. I'm making a kissy face in an aggressive, bitchy manner. <laughs> an aggressive kissy face, yeah. Anyway, so, okay, this couple who, I wouldn't say I know them. I've met them. I know their son. Um. So, the dad by trade, was a polar explorer. And the mum, I think, was modelling at the time, but I'm not 100% sure. I'm not married to that answer. Either way, she had... How the fuck did this couple end up in New Ross? Oh, no, they're French. Polar ex... Okay, I was like, polar expeditionist. I know people outside of New Ross, thank you. I know, it'd just be so weird if you were like, you know, I was in Canada (laughs) and that's... um... I believe he was a dragon slayer by trade. Awfully, where everything interesting happens. (laughs) Anyway. uh, Okay, to be clear, their son is married to my aunt. That's how I know them. So, yeah, he... So she had broken up with her boyfriend, and so her, like, her girlfriends took her out to dinner to, I guess, you know, to cheer her up and to show a little bit of, like, feminine solidarity and whatever. He had just gotten Mm -hmm. back from the South Pole. The North Pole. From a pole. He had just gotten back from one of the various Poland, poles of yeah. the earth. Um, and so his friends had taken him out to dinner, you know, like a welcome home dinner. And they just happened to be mm-hmm. in the same restaurant. This happened in the 1960s when women wore like huge beehive hairstyles with just like toxic hairspray lacquer kind of product to hold it up. Uh-huh. And to this day, this woman still has a habit of like, when she laughs, she laughs really big and she like, she's holding onto her belly and there's tears coming down her face and she leans into it. So she's just guffawing in rapturous laughter. She leans forward. Her huge beehive hairstyle catches fire from the candle on the table. And so this guy from the next table just like heroically leaps up and he's like, oh my God, this lady's on fire and throws a vase of water 
on top of her head. And then oh. they got married and had a kid. That makes sense. I, I was going to say it would be pretty unheroic if you just got up and drew attention to the fact. <laughs> if you just stood up and you were like... <laughs> Stand up, you're like, look, this lady's hair is on fire. Gather round, everyone. Just polite clapping. And say, wow, she's really working that fire. I should hire her as a model. Oh, I mean, they're quite nice people. Now, here's my thing. I've heard this story so many times. Like, it's everybody's favorite story. Everyone loves to tell it. I don't know if it's true, though. And that really bothers me because it seems far-fetched, doesn't it? These things can happen. My mum's hair has caught fire before. No, it hasn't. Yeah, in a restaurant, yeah. yeah we were all at to dinner. Did she lean forward on the candle? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Apparently it's a thing that happens. It has never happened to me. I've never seen it happen in real life. But there you go. It could happen in real life. Now, I urgently want to move you along because <laughs> the next segment that we have here is that you're going to build me a wife. And frankly, we I've had a hard time. We are going to build you a wife. You know, you've got to do some of the work. It's kind of what having Let's a wife is all about. I've heard. <laughs> From me? Uh, <clears throat> sure. Uh, how, how, what, what process did you devise in order for us to, to construct said woman, hopefully woman? As I told you mere moments before we started recording, Chase, I have devised nothing. So, okay. let's build you a wife. Okay, first of all, you know what? Better yet, let's, let's do an open casting on our podcast. If you meet the following criteria and you want to marry Chase, get in touch. How? We don't know. Can people get in touch with us? <laughs> is, is that something that exists? Yeah, no, they can. Um, through the through the podcast website, you can you can email. We have a us, website. Um, Shit, that's fancy. Yeah, I'm going to set up an email address for it as well, uh, so we can have people suggest topics to us. Um, best thing to do. I'm on Instagram at, at Chase Nova Band, Twitter at Chase Nova Band, and Facebook at Chase Nova Band. I'm pretty easy to find. Send me a message if you're interested. Why am I playing along with this? That escalated quickly. Okay, no, no, please okay. go ahead. As we've just seen, he knows how to commit, which I've heard is something people look for. Um, are you, you're, you're pretty hard straight, right? You're looking for just the ladies? Preferably, yeah, I'm pretty hard straight, I'm afraid. Not for lack of trying. Okay, yeah. Ladies, ladies who like a man who's not afraid of commitment, not afraid of hosting a podcast, knows how to play guitar pretty fucking well. Mm. Um, okay, you need to... You need to be at least five foot seven. Why? Because you're normal size. I'd so be, they have to be normal size. I have no problem dating girls that are taller or quite a bit shorter than me. That's not a problem. I have a problem with you dating girls who are quite a bit shorter than you. Because girls who are shorter than you are like Hang eight. on, are we, build, are we building me a wife? Or are we building someone that you would like to... Okay, oh, right. oh I, I'm sorry. I thought I had a say in this. <laughs> No, you don't. I can't believe you're considering marrying someone I don't like. <laughs> Honestly, I feel like it would just make the relationship much easier. <laughs> we talk so often that we have nice to someone to bitch about. Like, it's the thing. <laughs> <laughs> so you think like you can call me and whinge about your wife when you're not getting on with her? No, I think I'd be calling her to whinge about you. I mean, you live with her. She's your. I, you don't have to live with her, but you probably live with her. Probably would do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Mm. Um. She needs to love Doctor Who. 
Yes and no, because it would also be cool to someone who's open to loving Doctor Who and that we get oh, to do... Oh, you'd yeah. like to show her Doctor Who. That okay. would be nice. You know what, that's yeah. better. She can't love Doctor Who already. She... But she should have a healthy interest in sci-fi. Yes, very true. Definitely. Yeah. Um, I would prefer if she was into Star Wars. I can live without that. I can live without that. I'm, I'm lo- I love Star Wars. I'm not mad into Star Trek, though. That's true. I would really like for her to be a musician. Uh, yeah, good. But also, like, we wouldn't do anything else then. We'd never have kids because we'd be too busy writing songs. <laughs> the songs are your kids. <sighs> yeah, but they're not going to look after no, you. No, trust me. Like, I'm a musician. I'm married to a musician. It's super fucking convenient. It's four in the morning. He's asleep. I'm violently shaking him. And I'm like, listen to this. Listen to this. Da, 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 da. And he's like, no, that's just four notes. No. Go back to bed. You know, you don't get to have that if you marry a non-creative. It's a valid point, actually. That would be quite nice. Yeah, you want to be able to, like, jump out of the shower, dripping wet, balls flapping all over the place, and be like, honey, honey, listen to this thing I just came up with. And have them instantly grab an instrument and be like, let me develop that while you fucking rinse. I'll be honest, if I was coming out of the shower as... What did you say? Balls flapping all over the place? Balls don't flap, by the way. Flapping. Flop. They flop. They, they go together. They don't like go separately. They flapping flop. is wingspan. They kind of just <laughs> straight down. But I think if I was in that situation, I wouldn't be like, hey, come listen to the song. I'd probably kneel down and say, honey, do I look a bit like the Terminator when he arrives? <laughs> there you go. A healthy interest in sci-fi. Very true. Important. That's important. I would prefer to be a musician. I think, do you have a hair colour preference? Because I would like you to marry a blonde or ginger woman. I actually don't... See, here's the thing is, I don't really like dating blondes, just because I'm so blonde. I'm very blonde. Mm. And I feel weird. Mm. I feel like we look odd. We look a bit Aryan together. And it's just oh, something off about it, yeah. Yeah, no. You start to look kind of like a gang. Yeah. Not like a, a cool gang. We look yeah. we look a bit uh, Cersei and Jamie Lannister-ish. Um, Mm. I'd be, I'd be, I, I, I quite feel like, like the children though, like the children would be cute. You could raise a t- an army of little, little blonde babies. I think I'd rather someone who's relatively sallow skinned with, with black hair because I'm not good. I'm okay in the sun, but if I marry a ginger. You're trying to do salt and pepper. Kind of a little bit. Yeah. I think that's a good idea. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So blondes need not apply. Um, she has to love cats. That's really important. Fido and Baby are part of the package. They're cats. You need to love them. If you're allergic to cats, just get the fuck out. True. That's a good plan. Yeah. Yep. The cats come with the chase. They do. Non-negotiable. Yeah. Um, do you want kids? Uh, I've always said maybe. And I, I stand Ooh, firm on okay. maybe. Yeah. I, like, of course, I'd love to possibly have kids someday. But like... I mean, if society's only going to last, like, 15 more years, like, what's the point? Okay, so she should be a little a little bit cynical, but not too cynical, because you don't want to be too much together, but you want her to be able to keep up with the way that you are. I'd like her That's to find my dark that. sense of cynicism and uh, apocalypticism charming, to say the least, would be nice. Apocalypticism. <laughs> so just, we're looking for, basically, the girl from The Ring. Um... Yeah, she was. You just need to be Emma, like so super depressed. And, okay, was she? Yeah, she was a kid. Samara Morgan. Why do I remember what vital piece of information have I deleted to keep that in my head? 
Oh, I have the wrong movie. No, the one who comes out of the TV and her head spins around. That's The Ring. That's Samara Moore. Oh, never mind then. Okay. No, The Grudge. Also, like, 12 years old. So... Really? Yeah. What the fuck, horror movies? What the fuck are you trying to This is why I don't watch you. This is why you aren't Tinder. (laughs) Okay, first of all, this is why I am Tinder. So far, am I doing worse than Tinder? You did okay. I'll let you know how many matches I get. If if my inbox is going to... Or IP my inbox. We'll see what happens. Oh... It's important to me that she have a vast vocabulary. Why? Because you want someone who can out-vocabulary me? That too, but also because I just, I just want to, you know, like her. Okay. And I, I shouldn't, but I really enjoy other people's vocabularies. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. Like, you need to understand, I'm going to be spending as much time with this woman, if not more, than you are. I have my doubts about that. You're welcome to. <laughs> she and I will talk about that. Heartily over brunch. I've no doubt. Have you any other requirements that my wife must have that I don't have a say in? Or hmm. Oh, she needs to love vinyl. Ideally, she should come with a pretty healthy... I was going to say vinyl collection, but I'm going to actually go with bride price. Are you think that's a good idea? Because like, I have quite a lot of vinyls, and like the two of us together, like we might cause a kerfuffle. Sink a ship. Yeah. It's not sink a ship, but like... Okay, well, then she should have a vinyl collection and a house to keep it in. Okay, yeah, no, no, I'm game with with road frontage and land. But it should be a large house, and that's what's important. (laughs) Basically, I want a rich woman that likes everything about me, has a house, will let me keep my records at her place, and also is quite interested in sex with slightly overweight blonde men with beards. That's what I'm into. It's a bit forward, Chase, not gonna lie. You've just laid it out now. There's no mystery. There's no allure. Well, it's, it's, uh, I might not be overweight by the time you hear it. <laughs> we don't know when this episode airs. We don't know how long lockdown lasts. We know exactly when it airs. It's airing on the 12th of February, just before Valentine's Day. That's why we're recording it now. Oh, you're right. I did know that. That's why we're doing it now, <laughs> yeah. on a different date, which is well, also I, a mystery to me. I look forward to meeting this future hypothetical woman, whether she exists or not, or whether mm. I'll dream about her tonight in the same process. It should be lovely. Thanks for helping me with that. Have you anything else to say on the subject? Bottom line. Of- yeah, bottom line. If you fancy Chase, let us know. That's it. That's all I have to say. He looks a bit like the cat. The c- you know the blue cat on the front of the podcast? You look like him. I don't actually look like him. You do a bit. You're both blue. Oh, okay. I forgot about my Smurf ancestry. Hopefully that's not a problem for the Smurf purists out there. I know that's a big hot topic race issue at the moment. <laughs> Have you anything else on the subject of romance? Um, oh, God, so much. Mm-hmm. So many things, like a podcast worth of stuff to say. Oh. Um, okay, so I, I prepared for this podcast by listening to a Nat King Cole album. Okay. Which felt correct. Like, that dude was romantic as hell. Um, in a I-want-to-own-you sort of a way. Which I think was normal at the time, right? Kind of what they do, yeah. Yeah, that was that. Was that. Um, and so, yeah, because of that, I want to delve a little bit into, like, the history of dating. Okay. Just touch on that. So, at least in an Irish context... The concept of dating didn't really come on the scene until the early 20th century. And up until that point, we just did courtship. Now, under like a courtship model, 
a young lady's family would choose a family that they wanted her to marry into according to social status and road frontage and other such things. And then her family paid for any outings, made appointments and plans so that she could get to know her fiancé. So you would basically have a date set up for you and you would just have to show up at the right time. You know? That sounds wonderful. That's what I thought. Yeah. But if I get to be the man... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and not the property. I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not disagreeing in any shape. I'm just saying, like, honestly, that sounds wonderful as a man. Why did we stop that? Yeah, well, uh-huh. we stopped that because about 100 years ago, young people just, they started going out into education and work more, and they started meeting each other and being like, hey, we fancy each other. And so there was a, just a huge societal shift away from courtship and towards dating. Now, the main difference between courtship and dating is that couples would do exactly that. They would go on dates. And there's, like, there was a tremendous freedom in that. And much and all as you're sitting here now going, fuck yeah, I want some old dude to organise all my dates and pay for them and whatever. Like, young men at the time were like, fuck yeah, I want to go where I want, when I want, do what I want. I don't want to go to the cinema. I want to go bowling. I don't think either of those were options 100 years ago, but you get the point. Yeah, I think they called them the talkies <laughs> at that stage. The, the pictures. Yeah, the... the Bowling involved eating soup at the time, as I recall. <laughs> that, was, that wasn't until 19... Also, 19, don't be saying, like, you know... 1985. I just wanted to make sure that, like, the criticism doesn't get aimed at me here. It's been a year of lockdown. I would be perfectly okay with someone scheduling three or four dates for me at the moment. That would be fine. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, knitting convention? I'm there. The RTE Concert Orchestra performs the music of Chris de Berg. Yes, I'm there. I'm game for all Ooh. that stuff. That sounds fine. Whatever you want to do, dear. <laughs> dear. Really leaning in on commitment, but... Okay. <laughs> so the point is, suddenly, like, the 1920s are here, everything is medium. Roaring 20s. Um, and, you know, people could just hang out and decide whether they felt compatible for themselves. And yeah, okay, that also meant that young men were paying for things instead of more or less getting paid to take on a wife. But that's when love and romance really started to be a factor for Irish couples. Now, that's only interesting because it happened in the 1920s. We're talking about 100 years ago. I'm not going way, way back for this information. Up until a hundred years ago, romance just didn't... People just weren't concerned with it. Wasn't a factor. Right? I mean, Downton Abbey would would bear to disagree, I imagine. There's an element of... I'm pretty sure Downton Abbey was made in, like, 2005. I think it's made about the time before that, if I'm not mistaken, though. I think... Uh, They're definitely taking some fucking liberties, like... Well, you do read stories... I mean, romance novels at the time would dictate that, like, even in the era of courtship, there was still an element of having to court. And- oh, there would have been a certain degree. Now, a lot of couples who were arranged married and would have courted in the structured way mm. super fucking loved each other and were super romantic about each other, whatever. That does mean romance it's existed, a, though, doesn't it? Of course it existed. I'm just saying it wasn't the primary basis for a couple to get together and get married. Uh, in fairness, neither is it now. 
Now, it was in, like a lucky bonus. But neither is it now. My argument would be that today, instead of like, you know, whether it's about road frontage or whatever, is whether you have corresponding or complementing mental illnesses. That seems to be how a couple is formed these days. I'm not going to lie. That was one of the longer discussions before <laughs> we got married. Oh, really? Where you were like, okay, you seem to be like this problem. I'm good at this. Will you be good at There is an element of that. Um, yeah, seriously. Or that's really important. I feel like what might be the most common uh, one now for like uh, young couples, especially in Dublin, is rent. It's it's just yeah. it's so much cheaper. Yeah, yeah. I know. So, though, to be fair, usually people who are that concerned about rent, they don't have the money to get married. True, they don't. You know, a wedding costs about twenty grand, right? Um, not the way I'm going to do it. I mean, our wedding cost about three grand. But the average, the normal Irish wedding costs about 20. Not the way you're going to do it. You're aiming for 100, is it? Uh, I was thinking 250 grand, actually. Yeah. It's oddly specific. Do you want to tell me more? I've got two kidneys. I only need the one. And um, <laughs> frankly, I, genuinely, it's because I really want to get married as an acrobat in Cirque du Soleil. No, so you don't. I want to have the tra- I do. I want to have the training. Which which is easily thirty grand. Like it has to be. You need to be with the best to get. It's also going to take about five years. Well, do you know what? That gives us enough time to decide whether we're really right for each other, um, which is great. That's true. Yeah. And then I want to be. Also, mar- I'm not going to lie. If someone spent five years training as an acrobat in order to marry me, I'd be like, oh yeah, you seem really serious about this. Now, bear in mind, I didn't say acrobat. I said Aquabat. I'm going to open up the first underwater oh. part of Cirque du Soleil. Yeah. Oh. I mean, could you not just take a shortcut and join the band? Join the band in Cirque du Soleil? No, join the Aquabats. Oh, I don't know. Are they a band? Which is a band that exists. Yeah, oh. they're a ska band. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Sorry. Yeah. No, don't, don't worry about it. Anyway. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> So, okay, so my grandparents met during the 1960s and they used to go to see live music or apparently, and this baffles me, they would go to wrestling. Yeah, no, big thing. Yeah, and yeah, my granny was super into wrestling. Now, she's still super into sports. So my granddad would have to take her out to wrestling shows to, I guess, try and impress her or woo her or whatever, which I think seems super counterproductive because surely she's then looking at the wrestlers and not at you. Part of me right? is thinking that myself, but there definitely would be an element of like, like you're not going to like it when I get my shirt off and we get home, let me tell you. <laughs> um, but there's also, well, it depends because wrestlers were different then, weren't they? Like, if you look at wrestlers even in the WWE... I think they were fatter, yeah. Yeah, they're much bigger, fatter guys. Yeah. Um, there's even, like we're talking about giant haystacks era. Yeah, exactly. You're talking about Butterbean mm. kind of. Although I wouldn't mess with Butterbean either. Yeah. Now that I think about it, do you know what? If Butterbean proposed marriage to me, I would strongly consider it. I mean, preferably if you weren't already married, you would strongly consider it. Right now, you'd say no. We'll figure it out. Okay. We'll figure it out. Cool. We'll find a way. We'll go to some country where they do that. So anyway, they're dating, they're having fun, whatever, but it was definitely like a public thing. They would have to go out to shows and events and stuff. She would have her friend come along and he would have his brother go with him. They married each other. That's a different story. But, you know, because it wouldn't do for people to think my granny was seeing a boy behind closed doors. Of course. And I, 
who met my husband on Tinder. Like, I tried to picture that and it baffles me. I can't imagine walking around feeling like, you know, my virginity had value. Or like there was some need to be public about my business in order to prove something. But it turns out it kind of works in reverse too. Because my granny was starting to fret that she would be left on the shelf by the time she got married at the ripe old age of 23. Whereas I got married when I was 24, King was 27, and our friends were a bit like, why? And our families were like, no, really, why? We were already raising a child together, but people seemed to think that marriage was just a step beyond rationality. And they acted surprisingly negative about us like being too young to get married in our mid-twenties and frequently offered us their unsolicited opinions on why they would never dream of getting married and how it's such an outdated concept and it's such a silly thing to do and such a waste of money. I do agree about the waste of money thing, but I also know that like if you're going to spend money on something, like a wedding's a good one because it's just a party to celebrate the fact that two people are in love. Spend the money. That's exactly it. Yeah, I'm with you. Like, we had a great time, you know? Um, so now, of course, every, every era comes with pros and cons. I fucking love the modern landscape of dating and romance where, like, the sole pursuit of sexual pleasure is totally valid and marriage is just like an optional extra if you feel like it. Hmm. I feel like now, a hundred years on, we actually need to re-normalize romantic love and re-normalize just getting married because you want to be married. Like, I'm thrilled about being in love. That's great. But I've had, we had people criticize our decision to get married. I've had people criticize me for, like, supposedly, like, public displays of affection is a phrase that people are throwing around. And people don't like it. When we're holding hands or we just, like, I'll be invited somewhere and I'll be like, no, I'm sorry. I don't sleep where my husband isn't. isn't. Like, we just won't. We won't sleep apart. We don't like it. I get the whole, the holding hand people, thing should be fine. It'd be like two people making out yeah. constantly. I'd be like, yeah, that's a fucking weird thing. I mean, don't make it sexual. Yeah. I mean, even just constantly like, kissing would be weird. But like, I don't get that. I uh, know. I kiss him all over the place. But why wouldn't I? I love to do it. On him or all over the place around the, like, the place? <laughs> all over the world. Okay, cool. I, Kissing Round the World with Emma and Gian, our other podcast. Not as popular during the COVID era, I might say. Um, I was going to say, though, that, that that is something I, I would I would argue against, is you said, what's wrong with someone wanting to be married? And I was like, nothing. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be married. But, like, surely the healthy attitude to take is, like, I'm going to get married if I meet the right person. Now, granted, you might meet someone who's pretty damn close to the right person. You're like, you know what? This will work, because the right person can be anybody, obviously. But... The idea of, I yeah. just want to be married, it does foster I mean, an that's unhealthy a bit, thing. That troubles me. Yeah. And I think that feeds into, I'm always saying this, and we're about to get complaints to at Chase Nova Band. Oh, brilliant. We've changed now. Nowhere else. Cool. Straight people don't even like each other. Well, we love each other. No, you don't. Why? I, I don't know. I've never been able to figure this out. All of it now, like... All of my straight married friends are like, oh, my husband is so smelly. He leaves his socks everywhere. Oh, my wife is so loud. She's always complaining. Bloody women. The engagement ring, the marriage ring, and the suffer ring. Am I right? <laughs> Why 
what is with this like boomer humor thing of you know we're married therefore we hate each other well i think it goes back to much further than boomer humor it goes back to like don rickles and that whole take my wife please that kind of fucking comedic yeah. bit. i think it goes back to the fact that it was such a societal pressure to get married and you you had such a, um, a public facade of having to seem to be in love at all times so that when a comic got up, it was like, hey, my wife, you better believe it. Or even, you know, if you look at the likes of, say, like, uh, Marvelous Miss Maisel, when she's a comic and starts bitching about her husband and stuff, it is mm-hmm. the risque subject matter. It's a, a married couple airing their problems in a public forum. And that's decried. And that's what made it part of the art form, you know? Which, fair enough, at that time... And now I'm pretty sure we have the opposite problem. We've come full circle now where people don't have to get married. People aren't even particularly encouraged to get married. And you know what? If you don't want to, don't. I don't care what you do. I, I, I like being married. It's not for everyone. Whatever. I'm of the same opinion. Um, but I do think that, like, I think there's, there's nothing well, necessarily wrong with People are still complaining about being married when they didn't have to. It's, I think people complain for the sake of they want to complain. It's not necessarily that they've got a grievance to air. It's just like, you know, ah, for fuck's sake. It's that. It's just the crack, basically. I don't know. I just, I just don't think it's appropriate. You're telling me you love your husband's farts. Your You're totally okay with your husband's farts. Never bothers you. I can't answer that because you're not going to believe me. He doesn't fart. Is that what you're going to say? Oh no, he farts all the time, but I just don't mind. <laughs> like he farted before we were married. I'm used to it. It's fine. Other people don't. That's what bodies do. It is, but you hear so you were saying he also poos sometimes. I have a friend who's married and he's never, ever known his wife to poo. She seems to... That's ridiculous. Yeah, no, she seems to get up in like the the early morning and just takes care of it and then it's done and you never hear anything about it. I mean, if something particularly interesting... Most of the time I just poo and I get on with it and it's just, you know, whatever. But if something particularly interesting happens in the bathroom, I will either text Kian from the toilet, even though he's downstairs, and be like, guess what's happening in the bathroom? Or I'll finish up, go downstairs and be like, guess what just happened in the bathroom? (laughs) I think that's weird. I think the other relationship is unhealthy too. I think there's a healthy middle somewhere, Mm. you know? Like maybe you should tell your husband if you're having, say, problems with your bowel movements. You should probably say, this could be a medical thing or this was kind of funny, acceptable on occasion. But you shouldn't also hide them from the people. There's a healthy medium there somewhere. It's part of my day. It's it's what's going on with me. And also, I don't have that much news to share during a lockdown. <laughs> <laughs> Every bell movement is the same as a social justice movement in, the, in your level of news at the moment. <laughs> oh, you'd hate being married to me. The things I, I would no tell you doubt. in the middle of the day when you're trying to work. I've no doubt I'd hate being married to you. And also, you tell me things anyway, and I still hate talking to you all of the time please stop texting i mean we, we're a little bit married we're podcast married we're, podcast we're just married. not romantic married you're not romantic yeah. married in the slightest and your wife wife uh, no not your wife wife and your work wife this isn't my work you're my hobby wife see that sounds weird doesn't that sound demeaning i, I it felt it as i was saying it i'm sorry yeah <laughs> but yeah no i think it's a problem and i actually think that it kind of ties into Something that we talked about on a different episode, but I have no idea which one. Workers don't play. When you're a child or you're a teenager, you can play and you can have fun and own toys and kiss boys and just be happy and do whatever you want. But once you're a worker, that is to say an adult, 
suddenly you're being punished for doing things that are unproductive but make you happy. And somehow I think that has come to include just, you know, just being in love, just getting married because you feel like it and not for societal reasons or just kissing someone in the middle of Tesco because they said something really funny and you're like, oh, look at your face. Or just refusing to sleep apart. You know, all of these things that people are now like, oh, look at you. You're like a lovesick teenager. You're so immature. You're so obsessed with each other. Oh, that's just, of course we're obsessed with each other. That's just love. love. Yeah, that's exactly the thing. Yeah. I'd be the exact same. I'd be the exact same. You'd be in love. <clears throat> You'd be, be someday, Chase, you're going to fall in love and you're going to be shocked by how other people take it. I already am in love, Emma. I already am in love. That doesn't work. It's a podcast. Oh, yeah. I held, you have to explain what you're doing. I held up my left hand as a joke. I feel like it doesn't work that well when you have to explain it. Well, I was with right hand at the start of lockdown. <laughs> Drama. And we broke up around three months in. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> but you still live together. We still live together. And it's, it's now an open relationship. So it's okay. Um, we're kind of a So thruple. you didn't break up? Well, we did for a while. Oh. Yeah, it's kind of a thruple now, I suppose. Okay, so just to be clear, did you get with the right hand and then the left hand joined back in? Or did you get back with left hand and then right hand joined in? Or did you all get together one day and be like, we're all lonely? Me and Wright had been together for probably like 20 years. Um, and then uh, broke up with Wright middle of last year, got together with left. And after a while, we sort of, we, 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 we do our thing. It's cash. It's very cash. I like that. I mean, I'm not going to pretend to understand it, much and all as I strive to be like the, the super modern, everyone do whatever you want thing. This seems a little bit left field for me, but I respect it. it, wa- respect well, it, it, it was right field at one point. Um, <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah, as you might expect. Yeah. Is that all you have to um, say on that? This joke has gone on too long. Oh, should I move on with my segment? Would that be the best course of action? I was going to do another one, but go on. No, do your other segment. You've got another segment. Give us your other segment. It's a quick one. Okay. Okay. Really quickly, I want to talk about Nabav Dori, the matchmakers. Uh Uh-huh. There's a really excellent John B. Keane play about this, which I think you should all go home and read and then write a thousand words about and then send your essays to Chase to be marked and returned to you before the next episode comes out on the 19th. Just because of that, Emma, fuck you, you can send them to Emma at Krustdashian, that's K-R-U-S-T-D-A-S-H-I-A-N, on Instagram. I'm impressed you can spell that. I intentionally chose a hard-to-spell username. Yeah, I'm amazed I can remember it, actually, to be honest with you. Yeah, I'm impressed, though I don't use Instagram anymore, so... I actually don't have access to my Instagram anymore. Well, they're still as likely to be read as they would be if they sent them to me anyway. It's true. Now, matchmakers, they were all the rage, like back in British-occupied Ireland. So basically, each locality usually had a professional matchmaker, and they would have a special meeting room to themselves, which was normally at the back of a pub. Of course. Where they... Okay, he... They were nearly all men, so we'll go with he... Um, where he would host the bride's parents and hammer out details such as what dowry they expected and who they were related to and such things, though the latter didn't seem to matter as much as I would have liked it to. This was very much a business deal, you know, you need to picture it as such. So, step two, if the negotiations in the pub went well, was the walking of the land. 
So the bride's family would go and they would look over the groom's residence and either deem it suitable or not. And then step three, all things having gone well, uh, the walking of the land was the Aiden of the Goose. And this would be the time when the bride's family would cook a goose and invite the groom over to meet the bride for the first time and have dinner together. And then step four is marriage. Done. That's it. It's a business transaction. You get to meet each other once. Now you're married. Right? I, 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 look. Do we love this? Are we bringing this back? I'm, I'm moderate, Hashtag matchmaking. moderately in favour of it. But the main reason is like, I think every union should be celebrated by eating a goose. I think that's fantastic. <laughs> I, I think that sounds amazing. If I went in the days and they were like, listen, I don't know how you feel about this, but we're having a goose. I'd be like, marry me straight away. I'm in. <laughs> So to be clear, like the person who finally does reach out, who has heard this episode and is like, oh, fuck yeah, I'll marry Ace Nova. Am I going to have to cook the goose? Who cooks the goose? I will. Uh, do you know what? I think we will go to a fancy restaurant where they cook the geese. Maybe some one of the, the Hang Dai is a lovely Asian restaurant on Cable Street. Ladies, if you're interested in joining me for dinner. <laughs> I love that we've just made this episode about that. <laughs> I just, also, I, I'm really enjoying myself. You need to know that. I, I'm glad. I'm happy you are too. Uh, I was going to say, because we've mentioned geese, I have to do my tradition on the podcast. Is that okay, Emma? Oh, God. Honk. That's me done. Oh, God. I have, every time I hear a goose, I have to go, honk. Honk. Okay, so matchmakers, like they're, they're, you know, figures of the community. They know everybody's business. They keep track of the young people. They know their interests and friends because often, but not always, they would try their best to create compatible couples who they thought would actually like each other, you know? Okay. And the other thing... Could you slip them 50 quid to get a, a better match? Like, I think, yeah. Yeah, okay. So traditionally, they would be paid with a bottle of whiskey. Oh, that's fine. Yeah, slip them the good stuff and be like, listen, yeah. could you talk to the O'Leary girl there? Okay. I've, I was going to say you wouldn't be making the match for yourself, but the situation I'm about to describe, maybe you are making the match for yourself. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the other thing did happen where an older farmer with a hefty dowry, would go to the matchmaker to acquire himself a wife, and he would be sold a wife who might be like 30 years younger than him and deeply unwilling to marry him. There's another John B. Keane play about that, just as an aside. Um, and, and it worked, because you would get these really poor families with these really good-looking daughters who just needed money. And so this rich farmer would come along and be like, I'll give you a hundred pounds for your daughter. And that was just common. It was just normal to sell your daughter. Isn't this how um, Donald met Melania, basically? Oh my God, is it? It might be, I don't know for sure. You just made that up, didn't you? I did, but you'd believe it in a second, wouldn't you? (laughs) I I was ready. (laughs) I was ready for you to tell the whole story. It did not surprise me at all. So they are still going today. The Lisdoon Vernon Matchmaking Festival welcomes singles aged 18 to 80 and chase. It's still held every year in the autumn, which is a curious time to have a matchmaking festival, given that the busy season for a matchmaker would be just before Lent. I love this part. 
In the 16th century, the Catholic Church said nobody is allowed to marry during Lent. And for whatever reason, this got twisted and all the couples were trying to get married in time for Lent. (laughs) I like that. So you have like, yeah, like 50 weddings in three weeks and then Lent starts and everything shuts down. Which... It's also the worst time to have your honeymoon, isn't it? If you're obeying Lent, it's, it's a shit time to have a honeymoon, yeah. Absolutely. T- don't, to be fair, I don't think honeymoons were commonplace at the time. Well, you, you... I don't think 16th century Ireland, people were like, we're going to Canada. Oh, no, wait, they were going to Canada, but not a good No, one. not at all. Now, can I tell you a real enduring love story? Like, is it going to be actually romantic? Because I've just shouted nonsense. It's quite romantic. You're going to like this, I think. There's also a dark okay, side. Excellent. But, uh, you've heard of Sim- you've heard of Simone de Beauvoir. I have indeed. And you've heard of Jean Paul Sartre. I think so. It's kind of like the male Simone de Beauvoir, really, would be the way of looking at him. Um, but I'll give you some background, okay. a little bit of background first. Simone Lucy Ernestine Marine Bertrand de Beauvoir, a lot of names, was a French writer, what? intellectual, existentialist, philosopher, activist, social theorist, and feminist. Not in that order, of course. Though she did as not as many jobs as names. She was busy. Uh, Though she did not consider herself a philosopher, she had a significant and vital influence on feminist existentialism and theory. Beauvoir is best known for her 1949 treatise, The Second Sex, a detailed analysis of women's oppression and a foundational text for contemporary feminists. She wrote novels like She Came to Stay and The Mandarins, but her most enduring work is probably her memoirs. The first volume, Memoir d'une jeune fille rangée, or Memoirs of a Dutiful Daughter. She is also very well known for her long-standing love affair with Jean-Paul Sartre. who also has many names. Jean-Paul Charles Aymard Sartre was a philosopher, playwright, novelist, screenwriter, activist, and literary critic. He was one of the key figures in the philosopher, uh, the philosophy, uh, or the key figures in the foundations of the philosophies of existentialism and phenomenology, and one of the leading figures in 20th century philosophy and Marxism. His works have heavily influenced sociology, critical theory, post-colonial theory, and literary studies. Sartre's early work mostly focused on the conflict between oppressive, spiritually destructive conformity and an authentic way of being. This is probably what led to his relationship with Beauvoir, in which they, together, challenged the cultural and social assumptions and the expectations of their upbringings, which they considered bourgeois in both lifestyle and thought. I'm sorry, I was so impressed by how quickly you were speaking. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that you kind of lost me. They're both... I've just been sitting here like a child in front of a rainbow. <laughs> how are you doing that? I, I, I know how to speak. It's fine. I learnt words off as a young age. Put it this way. They're okay. both smart as all hell and were very influential on uh, sociology, philosophy and feminism over the course of their writing times. Smart people. Perfect. Um, the Great. two intellectuals are known as the mother of modern feminism and father of existentialism. They shared a half-century partnership that defied all conventions of their time and most of the ones in ours. From 1929, mm-hmm. when Simone de Beauvoir and Jean-Paul Sartre met in the same elite graduate program in philosophy, they shared each other's work and lives without ever sharing a home. De Beauvoir and Sartre were classmates and competitors at the Sorbonne in 1929, studying for the aggregate in philosophy, a prestigious graduate degree. Although Sartre's marks surpassed De Beauvoir's, she was, at 21, the youngest person ever to pass the exam. In October of that year, that's 1929, um, 
The two began their romantic partnership, an experiment in personal responsibility and open-heartedness to Beauvoir, who had defied social pressures earlier in life by renouncing the Catholic faith, flouted expectation yet again by turning down a marriage proposal from Sartre. So he proposed and she said no. Um, instead, the couple came to an agreement that rejected what they considered bourgeois hypocrisy, that is, the patriarchal expectation that married men engage in extramarital affairs and lie to their wives who, in turn, would feign ignorance. Rather than pretending yeah. at monogamy, the lovers each had the freedom to pursue sexual and romantic relationships outside their own. The only condition was total transparency. I mean, perfect. At, it's great. At 1929, though, I'm just pointing out this is interesting. It'd be the head of the game. Absolutely, yeah. Like, consensual non-monogamy cropping up in 1929, I did not expect. But so far, I love this. They sound spot on. They're very, very clever people. And actually, I've read quite a bit of Beauvoir and, uh, De Beauvoir and, and Sartre in college, and they're both fast, uh, like, very mm-hmm. interesting writers. Um, so the pair never married or shared a home. Instead, they met daily in Parisian cafes to talk, write, edit each other's work, and often share details of their secondary liaisons. Their intellectual and emotional intimacy persisted for 51 years, though Sartre's traumatic service and capture in World War II, and long after the sexual component of the philosopher's soul marriage, had faded away. Simone de Beauvoir, who Sartre playfully referred to as the Beaver, never published a piece of writing without her partner's input until after his death. Well, it's de Beauvoir the Beaver, it's not like the Beaver. Oh, that actually makes me really sad, but mostly because I'm reading a book about Yoko Ono at the moment, and it just... It's just a bummer when your husband dies. That's all I'm saying. It's tough. Even if you're not married to him. Yeah. So she never published a piece of writing without her partner's input until after his death. Likewise, he referred to her as a filter for his books. And some scholars have even made the case that she wrote some of them for him, which is quite possible, actually. They, they shared very similar minds. In most cases, it's assumed that the man is the one who initiates such an arrangement while the woman merely endures it. But de Beauvoir was basically a French intellectual Hugh Hefner. Not only did she tally a long list of nice. playmates, but she was also an honest-to-goodness sugar mama. One of her babies was Olga, I'm going to pronounce this one, um, Kozakovich? Kozakovich, I'm going to say. Sure. One of her sugar babies. Uh, the daughter of a dispossessed Russian emigre who studied under, and on top of, and beside her when she was teaching in Rouen. Chase. Had to add it in. Promising to take care of her and even pay for education, de Beauvoir moved Kosakowicz, Kosakowicz, Kosak, ah, it's, ah, it's just too tough. Olga. Her name is Olga. Yeah, go with Olga. Olga. Um, mm-hmm. Moved Olga into the Hotel de Petit Mouton, where she was also living. Um, in fact, uh, Hugh Hefner could have learned a lot from de Beauvoir, um, who cared about her bunnies' minds as well as her bodies. On the other hand, she seems a lot less honest than Hef. When de Beauvoir finally had enough of Olga, she introduced her to Sartre, who fell head over heels and tried to seduce her for two whole years. But Olga wasn't into it, so she took a pass and found that there was in fact an exit. Right when Sartre had finally given up, however, Olga's younger and more receptive sister came to Paris. Oh no, oh, this has gotten very toxic. Hasn't it just... Uh, it seems like a fairly complicated configuration already, but then de Beauvoir became bored with it all and decided to seduce Olga's new boyfriend, who later became Olga's For- husband. <laughs> Even though he continued his affair Jesus with de Beauvoir Christ. well into their marriage. Well, you could knock me down, Mr. Noble. Getting some drama, are you? Enjoying the drama? 
I regret all the nice things I said about these people. <laughs> well, wait, because I, I, I'd argue some, somewhat similar that there is some good stuff too. Uh, De Beauvoir, okay. just to point out that the situation with Olga Kozakovich, uh, De Beauvoir mined the whole thing for material for her 1943 novel, She Came to Stay, in which she combined mm-hmm. Olga and her sister into one character who had lots of threesomes with a philosopher couple and then gets murdered. The book was dedicated to Olga, who <laughs> presumably began sleeping with a mess of weapons under her pillow. I would. You would have to. You'd, you'd think about it. Um, anyway. The book was dedicated to Olga. That's so inappropriate. I mean, if... She, That's the worst part. Well, you, you you could argue if they were aware of the works that they were just talking about it and this the situation and they knew it was an open thing. And I mean, obviously, if her husband was sleeping with de Beauvoir for some time after they got mm. married, they must have been cool with it. Presumably. This just reminds me of... So I used to write things, but not in quite the same way, suffice to say. Um, and I was dating a boy at the time, and we were staying with his mom for like a couple of weeks because she lived in a really nice house. And I was sitting at the table, and I'm typing away and whatever, and she comes in, and she's like, oh, Emma, what are you doing? And I'm like, oh, I'm working on a short story. And she's like, what's it about? And I'm like, oh, it's about a girl who accidentally, oh, fuck, kills her mother-in-law. Oh, fair play. Fair fucking play. And my boyfriend's mum just backed away. Just just left the room. I was like, yep, that's... She made the right call, hide the axes. I think so. Good for her, good for her. Um, The funeral was lovely, though, I will say. Um, (laughs) De Beauvoir and Sartre's partnership and unconventional relationship had high visibility within the tightly knit social circle that was the centre of both their social and professional lives. As part of the Parisian intellectual community, their circumstances created a keenly felt pressure to present a harmonious front. Scholars and journalists Mm -hmm. often accused de Beauvoir of publicly masking painful bouts of jealousy. While her inner emotional life is unclear, what's evident is the manipulative, often dishonest and arguably cruel treatment to which both Sartre and de Beauvoir subjected much younger female consorts. Take, for example, 16-year-old Bianca Bienenfeld, a student of de Beauvoir's who was 14 years her junior. Soon after the two women began mm-hmm. their affair, de Beauvoir introduced her lover to Sartre. He promptly made it his mission to seduce Bienenfield, and after a romantic entanglement between the three of them, de Beauvoir told Sartre to end it, which he abruptly did in a letter. Bienenfield, who was Jewish, later narrowly escaped the Nazi occupation of France. Neither de Beauvoir nor Sartre tried to find her. When she read letters to Jesus Sartre Christ. and saw the flippant tone the pair took towards her, she said their perversity was carefully concealed beneath Sartre's meek and mild exterior and the beaver's serious and austere appearance. In fact, they were acting out a commonplace version of dangerous liaisons. Okay, I feel like you opened with, you know, they were like, it's, it's the dawn of consensual non-monogamy, but it's not. They're just the original fucking unicorn hunters. These are terrible people. Well, they're not necessarily unicorn hunters either, because Simone uh, regularly, de Beauvoir, would regularly engage in lesbian relationships as well. So they're not necessarily... Sartre, I don't know, but it is rumoured that he had male lovers too. I feel like that's a thin excuse. Well, I f- it is, it's not an excuse. I'm just pointing out that unicorn hunter might be incorrect, because unicorn hunter is essentially you're looking for a woman who's bisexual into men and women. Who's going to have a threesome with a straight, with a straight couple. couple. Yeah, that's yeah, the deal. Yeah. But this couple are virtually Usually. straight and the woman's normally sort of semi-acquiescent. I mean, I don't think either of them or possibly both of them being bi necessarily restricts them from engaging in unicorn hunting. But I'll have to take this question to Reddit. 
That's worth doing. You take it to the woke community and come back to me when you when you have a response. That's what I'll do. And tell them to please consider my application for on excommunication. It would be nice to get back <laughs> into the warmth. Well, do you still have the penis? <sighs> for now. It's not a big one. Okay, well, we've been over this. <laughs> um, <laughs> so here's the deal. So, but I mean, they were a consensually open engaged couple and everybody who they partnered with I mean consensual that. to each other but it seems like they have pretty fucking loose definitions with other people but they were consensual with other people too there was never any issue of consent here it sounds like they were coercive they may very well have been coercive but I mean romantic entanglement does involve a certain small element of coercion now that's for the history books are we excusing this behavior no we're not I am definitely not. There's many times, especially with 16-year-old Bianca, when there's like a letter that breaks Wildly her heart who then gets her... Yes, completely. Oh, let me just fuck my teenage student and then No, she was, she was to Beauvoir's student. She was to Beauvoir's student. That's what I said. And then, and my, and then here, my Sartre, teenage student. you go date my husband, it, th- basically. That's exactly, yeah. yeah. Let me just fuck my teenage student and then bring her back for my partner to have a go of. What the fuck is that? It is pretty insane. They, it was the swinging 40s. <laughs> the Enfield may be in its swing in forties, a popular expression. Oh yes, the fucking forties, you might say. Uh Enfield <laughs> might be a very extreme example though, but she's not entirely atypical. Uh Sartre tended to treat younger romantic prospects, all of whom were female, more as conquest than partners. All of whom were female I have an asterisk next to because there's quite a lot of rumoured male lovers too. None of it can really be proven, it just wasn't spoken about because that was far more frowned upon than lesbian relationships in France at the time. Um Yeah. Uh, he would spend months or years persuading them to get into bed with him and then bouncing off to regale the beaver with details. So it seemed that they were just having a coffee morning thing. He was engaging with toxic masculinity with his wife, which is the weirdest thing. He said, guess what I was doing? Though they're not married, are they? They're not married, but they do refer to each other as husband and wife. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, I know couples who do that, who just don't need the paper. Yeah, fair enough. Fine. Sartre would often pay his mistress rent to ensure they were nearby while trying to keep them ignorant of each other. De Beauvoir, you might argue, was among the deceived, but she was actually far more often an accomplice in Sartre's courtships, and he in hers. For her part, De Beauvoir outside relationships appear more amorous and tended to be longer term. There was Nelson Algren, um, an American novelist, with whom she shared a... Sorry, my notes have stuck together. (laughs) Ew, Chase. I know, I know. Ew. Not for that reason. Uh... <clears throat> there was, I'm going to call your therapist. Oh, go away. Rat you out. There was Nelson Algren, the American novelist, with whom she shared um, de- a decade of transatlantic love, esser, love letters addressing him as her beloved husband. He was a thinly veiled character in her 1954 novel, The Mandarins. Um, she even lived with Claude Landsman, the French filmmaker, for the bulk of the 1950s, but there were, uh, but these were her relationships with men. When it came to her same gender partnerships, de Beauvoir tended to be more exploitative. There was a painful entanglement with Bienenfeld, described earlier, for example, and an affair with Natalie Sorokin, a 17-year-old student, which cost de Beauvoir her teaching license. Um, which it... Absolutely good. should, I agree. Um, looking back, if we can learn anything from looking back on the two of them, um, it's that an incredible intellect in a world-changing body of work don't render a person free of flaws. The love they had for each other is as undeniable as the harm that befell many who became entangled with it. Still, we can count among the many questions that de Beauvoir raised in her life and writing, when free, ge- when free of gendered and oppressive social expectations, what does love look like? 
which is essentially the central theme of her entire body of work. Simone has a couple of quotes here, which I'll finish off with. We were two of a kind, and our relationship would endure as long as we did. But it could not make up entirely for the fleeting riches to be had from encounters with different people. Sartre died in 1980 in Paris from edema of the lung. He had changed his will a year previously to be buried at Montparnasse Cemetery, much to the surprise of his family, whom had a plot in Père Lachaise Cemetery. De Beauvoir published no more works, as she did not wish to write without Jean-Paul. She passed in 1986 of pneumonia, where it was revealed that she was to be buried beside Sartre in Montparnasse Cemetery. Never married, never exclusive, and now lying together for all eternity. Don't try and give this, like, a nice ending. I'm giving it both. What a gross story. I'm giving it both. That's what I'm saying. I think there's, there's a I certain mean, element you know, of... being a person is like that, isn't it? Well, you're the person who challenges, you know, gender norms. You challenge romantic norms. You say... I like to think exactly. so. Exactly. So when... F- I'm not sure that I challenge romantic norms. We are the most straight-passing couple in the world. Fair enough. But you get my point. Like, if you've read De Beauvoir, her entire body of work is what does love look like without the oppressive dynamics mm. that exist between genders? And she lived her like, life. I've read a couple of her essays and I really, really enjoyed them. But now I kind of want to go back and like dig through a little bit of her work with this new information in mind. Feel free to. Um, either way, I thought yeah. it was an interesting story at the very least. And also there's a certain element of... P- a particular for its... Ugh, sorry. Particularly for its time. And also interesting because like, let's be honest, that's a very pure form of love there. Never married, never lived together, but want their souls to be together for all eternity? Something I mean, that's romantic as shit. It is. Now, let's uh, fuck it all up with a lovely quiz. Ah, a romantic quiz. A rom- oh, is it a romantic quiz? Okay. Uh, kind of. Um, okay, so our quiz this week, I am going to have you... I'm, I'm going to give you multiple choice, because I think it's a little bit too difficult otherwise. Okay. I'm going to have you name the partners or spouses of some very famous people. Oh, that's going to be tough. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be tough. Now, we're going to start with Albert Einstein's second wife. Not his first wife. She doesn't count. She's just the wife who was much smarter than him and contributed greatly to a lot of his work. I'm talking about the second wife. What's her name? A. Maliva. B. Elsa. C, Margot, or D, Fanny? Fanny. No, Fanny Cock was the mother of Elsa Einstein, Einstein's second wife, slash maternal first cousin. She was my second guess. I was going with like, oh yeah, second wife, cold shoulder, frozen, Elsa. It makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense. Yeah, Einstein. Uh, married someone much smarter than himself, stole a lot of her academia, and then married his double cousin, whose mother's name was Fanny Cock. Which of the following was not one of Marilyn Monroe's husbands? A James, a Joe, an Arthur, or a Brent? A Joe. Oh, yeah? I was pretty sure that Joe was an extramarital affair. They never married. Joe DiMaggio. Joe DiMaggio and Marilyn Monroe were actually married from 1954 to 1955. Damn it! I thought. But she never married anyone named Brent. Yeah, yeah, valid actually. It's a weird name. There you go. It's very New Zealand. You know, it'd be like Marilyn Monroe and Brent. Brent. (laughs) My name's Brent. Lovely to meet you. Yeah, no, she was actually divorced from James Doherty for eight years. Oh. 
by the time she met Joe DiMaggio, very briefly married Which him. is when she made that film, The, the Seven Year Itch, as well. That's right, yeah. yeah I've, I've seen it. It's very good. Okay. Um, Michael Jackson very famously married Lisa Marie Presley of the Elvis Presleys, but before that, he had a first wife who bore one of the following names. Please tell me which one. Dallas Roscoe, Debbie Rowe, Darla Regine, or Doris Ramsey? I feel like it's Debbie Rowe. Or no. It is Debbie, Debbie Rowe. Rowe. Yay. Oh, I should have let you finish. No, no, it's fine. Too late. Got it. <laughs> well done, you. Yay. Which of these lucky ladies got to marry Guy Fieri? Lauren Fieri, Carla Fieri, Jasmine Fieri, or Laurie Fieri? It's none of the above. He's married to flavour. Um, <laughs> I'm giving you partial credit. <laughs> um, okay. Is her name Lauren, Carla, Jasmine, or Lori? Uh, Jasmine? It's Lori. Oh, fair enough. I wanted it to be Jasmine. Yeah. I want her to have a food name. Yeah, yeah. Who are you married to? Yeah. Uh, mustard. <laughs> exactly. You're like ham. This is my wife, Porkina. Like the guy from the Bible. <laughs> or my wife, Porchetta. <laughs> also... You're not to laugh when I say when I say Guy Fieri. I will have no ill. I love him. Spoken. He's a great guy, but he's funny. He's Wonderful a meme. Human. He is a meme though, and he's funny for sure. But he is, and he doesn't get enough credit. Yes, love the guy. Um, okay, what is the first name of the second gentleman of the United States of America? Is it Dan, Mike, Doug, or Carl? Is it Doug? It is Doug. Yeah, I I follow him on Twitter. <laughs> on what? Twitter. It's the alt-right version of Twitter. Good to know. Twitter. Okay. Cleopatra VII, ruler of Egypt, was married three times. We all know more than enough about Mark Antony, but can you name, without multiple choice options, any of her other, well, either of her other two husbands? Uh, Mark Antony and Alexander the Great was one of her rivals, her lovers at one stage. Were they married? I don't know. I'll go for it. Yeah, Alexander the Great. Okay, so there's a popular misconception that she was married to Alexander the Great. There is a popular misconception that she was married to Julius Caesar. No. No, her first two husbands were Ptolemy VIII and Ptolemy IX, her brothers. Cool. So her eldest brother and then the middle child and then Mark Anthony. And when she fucked off with Mark Anthony, the middle child married their other sister. Was this before or after Mark Anthony replaced Sammy Hagar and Van Halen? After. Oh, okay. Yeah, he was... Even- because she married him for the money. She wanted the Van Halen money. Yeah, no, fair enough. He went downhill fast after that. I mean, that's... that's. I feel like I, I deserve a point sure. in some way for knowing Alexander the Great was a quarter of her. Well, that's like the trick answer. It's a semi-trick answer. Like, I mean, I got two of the lovers in Cleopatra's web of high-flying bitchery. Okay, I, I will give you partial credit. I will give you a half a point. Yay! Right, question seven. Scarlett Johansson, who I assume you know from Marvel stuff, got married in December of 2020. To Colin Jost. What TV? From Saturday Night Live. Correct. All right. <laughs> do you want me to continue or do you want to just take the point and move along? Oh, you can move along. I figure I've got that one right, have I? Yeah, you've gotten it right. It was going to be, what TV show does her new husband Colin Jost write for? And the answer is Saturday he Night Live. He performs on it. He does the weekend update. He's that guy. He does both. 
Well, they all write. I don't they all... watch any of it. Oh, I do. Seemingly, do... he's he wrote for it for like ten years before he actually appeared on screen. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Our last question is: Whom of the following was married to the Reverend Doctor Martin Luther King Jr.? Was it Carly Scoff, Coretta Scott, Colleen Scotch, or Karina Scoz? Give me the second two. Give me B and C again. B is Coretta Scott. And C is Colleen Scotch. I think it was Coretta Scott. Are you married to that answer? Well, literally, no. But I'm not sure, so I'm going <laughs> to guess B, though, in that case. And right, you are. Dr. King was married to Coretta Scott. I read that somewhere. How'd I do? Um, five and a half out of eight. Uh, five and a half. That's, that's average for a man, if I'm not mistaken. Roughly, yeah. <laughs> It's not in line with my personal experience, but it's what I've read. <laughs> it's uh, it's unfortunately it's how I know I'm doing slightly better than all right, ladies. If you're still looking to apply, <laughs> um, at Chase Nova or something, <laughs> at Chase Nova something. Bad emails at pontification.com. I read the complaints more for that's the one exactly. Uh, this has been wonderful, Emma. Thanks so much. Did you have fun? I mean, it's been uh, it's been all right. It's been all right. I'm going to make it brilliant right now. Are you ready? You have permission to do a monologue. No, I I request your full attention for this. No. No, I need it. Okay, fine. Okay. Okay. I'd like to begin this week's final words with a paraphrase quote from beloved Simpsons character, Mr. Burns. Family, love, friendship. These are the three demons you must slay if you wish to succeed. Unfortunately for us, he's right. Most often when you hear of folks losing out on love in their lifetime, it's likely because they put their energies into their careers, artistic endeavours or accomplishment. It's an age-old debate, I feel. Whether it's worth putting all of your energy into contributing to the world, or whether you want to experience that true feeling of unconditional love. I know that love is rarely unconditional. There are not many relationships that could survive an affair, an illness, a death or even a physical transgression. Thus the title of my play about married life, A Fart That Could End a Marriage. But I have a confession to make. I am a true romantic. I believe love is real and I believe it's more than a smattering of misfiring neurochemicals. I actually believe that it's virtually inexplicable. Why do you think we put up with so many horrible song lyrics and predictable poetic ruminations on it? It's because we cannot better explain our feelings for another human being without resorting to tired platitudes, overused similes, or quotes from Capri's milk tray adverts. And as much as I want to bemoan all of the capitalistic exploitation and hideous artistic output that love has both generated and suffered through, I have to take pause to remember that the reason so much of this absolute drivel tends to bore and frustrate me is because I've been on the wrong side of unrequited love. I've loved and devoted so much of myself to another person and received no love in return, and that's okay. That person owes me nothing. I'm sorry. It's okay. It wasn't you. (laughs) Don't act. Don't play with me. I'm not, because I'm going to tell you who it is in a minute. So can I just, yeah? Excuse me? Okay. Is that why they called him Monologue? Yes, exactly. Because I have mono. Okay. That person owes me nothing for me feeling the way that I feel, and I not only respect it, but I understand it. In fact, as I sit covered in equal parts soil and my own tears and blood, I've come to understand it more clearly than ever. I'll tell you the story. Those of you who were raised male will understand that, as such, you don't receive the same amount of romance as our raised female counterparts. And that's because, historically, it's been the job of the man to woo and the woman to choose sparingly whom she deems worthy to have sex with her. 
Obviously, this has changed drastically in the last 20 years, but a lot of the power dynamics are still very much at play, at least as far as I can tell. So believe you me that it reduced me to tears when I was gifted my first and only Valentine's Day card at the tender age of 17. Jessica O'Leary was never a partner to me. She was almost (laughs) like a performance artist. Each day she would walk past and silence all men in the classroom. Everything she had to say was either insightful or witty, and everything she did was somehow graceful and captivating. She always smelled of expensive perfume, had jewellery far beyond the usual reach of a North Dublin household, and she only brought homemade soups, sandwiches and salads to lunch. So please understand that I never believed I'd muster even the courage to dream about kissing the exhaust pipe of the bus that brought her to soccer practice of a Saturday. And yet, February 14th, 2008, there she was at my doorstep, asking to come in. Of course, I dropped my jaw in complete shock before my mother interrupted and invited her inside. We sat in my front room in complete awkward silence as I weighed up exactly when I was going to wake up from this dream. Jessica put her hand on my wrist and I nearly recoiled in fright, but then I leaned in. Don't be so nervous, she said, as she produced a bottle of Prosecco from her handbag. Retrieving two glasses from the shelf, she told me she'd been noticing me for quite some time. She said I was strong and not like the other boys. She handed me a glass and I drank the whole thing in one swallow, hoping for some Dutch courage to aid my still frozen tongue. You're exactly what I've been looking for. You're perfect, she said, as I quickly gulped my second glass before she'd even taken a sip from hers. She then produced a red envelope and handed it to me. I just wanted you to have this, given the day that's in it. Thank you, I said, now finishing my second glass, but regaining my ability to communicate in sounds other than squeaks. I opened the envelope and it was a card, definitely homemade but so perfectly crafted that it would be so hard to notice. It was beautifully adorned with gold and red glitter with a hand-drawn picture of me in the centre, though a far more idyllic and handsome version of me. Underneath was a simple message that gave me a dizzying and almost soporific elation. I want to make you mine. I read the words aloud in an almost breathless delivery of surprise and shock. I looked at Jessica, still dizzy from her gift that I could see four fuzzy but still beautiful versions of her in my field of vision. Yes, Chase, she spoke her voice seemingly slipping further and further away from me. I want to make you mine. It's here that things get hazy for me. I close my eyes and drop the glass of Prosecco, the shattering sound making me open my eyes for a brief moment just to see the four of Jessica standing over me and smiling. That smile. I dreamt of that smile for the longest time, awakening after an indeterminate amount of time to see my ankles changed to a post on the wall. My clothes had been removed and I wore only a cloth for modesty, surrounded by soil and tools. It was then that a sharp sting pierced my lower back, and I turned to see Jessica dressed in all leather, shouting at me to get up and get to work. In my still intoxicated state, I grabbed the tool nearest to me, a pickaxe. I looked to my left and saw three of my school friends, all furiously driving their axes into the walls and removing lumps of shiny rocks from the impacted dents and placing them into buckets behind them. Still without my full senses, I joined in so as to feel included. On the ceiling above our heads, pictures of Jessica in beautiful gowns and dresses filled every facet of our vision, except for some intermittent lettering that spells out, do it for her. It's been 12 years now, and I've learned a lot from my time in the Angolan Goldbines. I've had time to meditate on love and what it means, and I've gotten quite close to Jessica. Every six weeks or so, when we meet our quotas, she visits us and spends time with us. She brings us fruit and bread and listens to us when we request more water or an extra 10 minutes of sleep or first aid. 
You see, when I say I understand unrequited love, I mean it. Loving Jessica is like loving the moon. As much as I love to admire it and stare at it from my cell on cold nights, I would never expect the moon to love me back. Now I'm sad to say that this podcast has come to an end. I only have a few minutes before we're served our only meal of the day. I've been told we're having turnips today. It must be somebody's birthday. (laughs) And I know that listeners will be divided on how to feel about Jessica, but say what you will about her. She ain't no gold digger. (laughs) Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. (laughs) I have so many questions. Is it? I'll take them after the podcast stops. Okay. Bye. (laughs) Bye. Bye.